As we think about the presence of God, and this morning as we're going to be talking about this, we're not going to be talking about it as if God is present with us today in some miraculous sense. We're not going to be talking about God whispering in our ear and telling us how we ought to live. We're going to be instead looking at God's Word and looking at some examples we have from the Scriptures of God's presence at various times throughout the Scriptures and then look at some reminders that God, that the Bible has for us today regarding the presence of God and some lessons we can take away from those things. So I want to show this morning the encouragement and the strength that we can find from the presence of God. You think about for a moment just that verse, those few verses we read a moment ago, there from Jeremiah. That is clearly about God being present with his servant. What's interesting is God is is speaking as being present without being physically present, isn't he? He wasn't physically standing next to Jeremiah. He wasn't physically sitting next to those who are part of Israel. But it's very clear that God was still present with them, right? As you look there in verse 11 in Jeremiah 29, a very uh, popular verse that seems to be especially as of late. It's seen a lot of different signs and things. But here's a, here the Bible says, For I know the thoughts I think, you, think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And that verse reminds us that God wants the very best for us. You notice there that has nothing to do with any physical things. But God wants us to have the very best in a spiritual sense. He wants us to be the very best follower of Him that we could possibly be. Now, it used to be, I forget what branch of the military it was, that said, be all you can be. I think it was the Army way back in the day. Be all you can be. What does that mean? It means to fulfill your potential, as they thought your potential was. But looking here in verse 11, that's really the idea we find from God. He wants to give you the fulfillment of all your potential, that is, in a spiritual sense. He wants you to be the very best follower of Him that you could possibly be. But then notice that He doesn't just say that and say, I want you to be the very best person you can be for me and just leave it at that. He says, then I will call upon, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. Can you listen if you are not present? Now, we understand today we can get snarky and say, well, someone can text you and, you know, they can hear you that way. But when we pray to God and He hears us, He's not physically present with us, but He still hears us, doesn't He? So it shows in that spiritual sense that He is no doubt present. He says, you will call upon me and go and pray to me. And He says, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. You know, there, all these things he's mentioning here are all spoken of in a positive context. He says, you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. You think about that. Some people say, well, what does it mean you got to search for God with all your heart? It means you can't treat God like someone who's just there only when you need him. He's not an emergency button. He is one who is always there for us, and we should treat him like that. Would you want a friend, he only treat, he's only around when they need something from you? That's not a very good friend, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's not a very kind way to treat someone. And so we don't want to treat God that way either. We want to be with someone who sincerely wants to be with Him all the time. Thus, we search for Him always. We want to be near God. 
He says in verse 14, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. Now we know as we continue to read here, he talks about how they were snuffed into captivity even by him. They were being punished. Captivity was used as a form of punishment from God because of someone's actions or failures or things such as that, their, their mistakes. But think, think about it this way. Can captivity also be used in a way of showing trials and hardships which we must overcome? Were there hardships they had overcome in the wilderness? Well, they endured for all those years, didn't they? Not being able to escape, no matter what they did, no matter how much they tried, they could not leave the wilderness. Now, I've been lost before, but I've always found my way home. In that, in that wilderness in which God sent those individuals, there was no way of getting out. God was with them as well, but he was with them because of their disobedience. We also know there are those who would walk out of that place because they were not involved in their act in those sinful things. But we look at Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, it's clearly spoken of God being present with the faithful. Let's think about some other examples for us today. Think about the presence of God. One of the ones I think of is Joshua back in Joshua chapter 1. We know Joshua would follow Moses, which can you imagine being the one to come after Moses? I can't even begin to imagine that. You know, at different points and different companies and things, someone has to take over someone else's spot when they move on or they quit or whatever it may be. Moses passes away and God basically tells Joshua, okay, now it's your turn. You need to imagine taking over. And you have to realize in reality, I never really liked that term because Joshua didn't really take over, did he? The torch was merely passed on to him. He was going to continue doing the same things that Moses would have done. If Moses had lived during the time of Joshua, he would have done the same thing that Joshua was doing. And so he wasn't taking over. Instead, he was continuing the work of Moses that God had given him to do. Look at Joshua chapter 1, looking at verse 5. He says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. This is the Lord speaking to Joshua. As I was with Moses, and there was no doubt God was, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Now, if we believe God to be the one who keeps his promises, what does verse 5 tell us? That he would never leave Joshua. He would never forsake Joshua. As he was with Moses, he's going to be with him. God made that promise to him. God promised to be with him just as he was with Moses. Joshua was told there was no reason to fear because he was with him, that God was with him. Looking at verse 9, Have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage, and not be afraid, nor be dismayed? And what was the reason why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord wasn't physically walking in step side by side with Joshua. But he most definitely was there with him, wasn't he? I'm with you. Now notice, wherever you go. Wherever you go. Now I've been invited to various trips. Some of them I've gladly gone. Some of them said, no, I said, no thanks, I'll, I'll pass on that. God never says, I'll pass on that. You think about Joshua's life, Moses' life, they faced a lot of battles. There was a lot of bloodshed. There was a lot of hard-headed people they also had to deal with. And God was with them, he says, wherever he was. All those times people came up against Joshua, God was there. Just like all those times they came against Moses, God was there. 
know, we can go back and look at more, and we're going through just a second. You think about Noah. What do you think kept Noah building that ark? I think one, because he wanted to obey God, and two, because God was with him, he was convinced of it. Noah is one of the few men who can literally say that the whole world was against him, right? The exception of his family or saying those eight people getting on the ark, everyone else was against him. There's a reason that while they were the only ones who got onto the ark, because no one else was qualified into the ark. God was with Noah, God was with Moses, God was with Joshua. God was also with a man by the name of Daniel. God looked after Daniel in numerous ways. He was blessed. He was an incredible character. You look at Daniel chapter 6, we know one of the most familiar instances in Daniel's life is the den of lions. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been in some scary situations. Not so much I think I'm about to die, but some of them I think I want to get out of here as quickly as possible. I've never been in a den of lions, but I had been lost in Memphis years ago, and I was glad I got out. It was dumb luck, or stupidity got me lost, and dumb luck that I got out. Because you get in certain places, you don't want to be there. Because safety becomes a very big issue. And you can find that in any city. I don't care where you are. We know we can find it in Tulsa, can't we? Yeah. But I wanted to get out of there. You think, Dan, when he got in the lion's den, you think he wanted to get out of there? I don't think there's any doubt he wanted out of there. But we know in Daniel's situation, why was Daniel there in the first place? Because he wasn't going to stop putting God first and stop praying to God like he had been. God was his God and was not going to be any king or any leader. And so these other colleagues of him basically rat him out, don't they? And they say, well, we hear about this guy, I'm paraphrasing clearly. And they bring Daniel before the king. He is honest and he is thrown to the den of lions. Looking at verse 16, so the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him to the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Now, we understand by the context, the king regretted his actions. He did not want Daniel in that den of lions. But he made a promise. It was sealed. He made a decree. It was sealed. And so he couldn't go back on it. But notice what he says to Daniel. Your God, whom you serve continually. What does that mean? Do you think he was fully aware how much Daniel loved the Lord? How much he loved God? He even knew how much. Now, the text doesn't reveal Daniel ever having a conversation or a Bible study with this king, but his actions and no doubt the other things he would say reveal this man follows God constantly. He says, He will deliver you, verse 16. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the signet of his lord, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. The king was worried about Daniel. He was, he was trusting in Daniel's God, interesting enough, to deliver him. But he goes back to his palace. No musicians are brought, which would have been custom to help give him comfort, because there was extreme guilt in the mind of that king. Daniel, of all people, was in the den of lions. In verse 19 and following, and the king arose very early in the morning. Notice he goes there as quickly as possible. He wanted him in there in a short amount of time and wanted him out as quickly as possible, right? He narrowed that window. He didn't have to get up early in the morning, did he? 
No, he could have took his sweet time. But instead he waited, he stayed up all night, but I was dead asleep, left him back in verse 18. Verse 19, he goes up early in the morning. He went in haste to the den of lions, and when he came to the den, he cried out the lamenting voice to Daniel. Then the king spoke to Daniel, Daniel, serve the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from these from the lions. Verse 21, he says what? Yes. Why? Because God was with him. Was God physically in the den of lions of Daniel? No. But he was there. We think about men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also there in Daniel chapter 3 when they were cast in a burning, fiery furnace, right? The Bible describes a man who had the figure like the Son of God. It doesn't say he was the Son of God. But it says he was like the Son of God. Nonetheless, was God with those three men? Yes. Was he in the fire? No. But he was there. Physical presence, the lack of physical presence does not mean the lack of spiritual presence, does it? God is a spirit being. The Bible tells us God is spirit, right? So how would he be present in the spirit, spiritual way, right? They knew he was there. Those three friends, Daniel knew he was there. What about the Apostle Paul, an interesting character who the hardest part of his life was after he obeyed the gospel, right? having his name changed from Saul to Paul because Saul was definitely a name he wanted to get away from, but also that was the name that God had given him, right? He was going to be changed from Saul to Paul. I think there's a lot of different things that you take away from that, but he was a new person, wasn't he? We look at Acts chapter 16 and verse 22. We know the Apostle Paul spent most of his time where? In prison. Why? Because he was a horrible person? No, because he, wanted, he refused to be quiet about the truth of the gospel. And what, what happened, he got thrown in prison for. Looking at verse 22. The multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now this is Paul and Silas. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they, put, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having, reached, having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now I originally was going to pick, some different, I was going to pick out a different part of this, but I thought it was important to notice that they're in the inner prison, which means you're in the very depth of the prison, a place you don't want to be in. And their feet are in stocks. Some have pictured them as being, in being placed against the wall in stocks and not being able to move. But it's very clear they're in a place no one wants to be. They can't leave physically. But what does verse 25 say? But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Why would you sing about God in prison? Because you knew He was there with you. They were praying and singing hymns to God in the prison. Think about that for a second. They allow their location, their current situation to deter them from loving God. No. Now the Bible says there in verse 25 that prisoners were listening to them. Listening to what? To we, we understand probably they're singing but I doubt these guys were very quiet. Maybe it echoed where they were. And we understand we meet sometimes we say well they, they heard their singing and I think that's very true. But I think it's also a good chance they might have heard their prayers. Me personally I have a hard time believing Paul did anything very quietly because he didn't care what happened to him. 
He tells us that many times, doesn't he? You know, if I if I go on, you know, great. If I if I if I continue to live on this earth, great. If I die and go on to paradise, great. He didn't care what happened to him. He literally did not care. When you're in a prison and and stopped and you're singing singing to God and getting praying to God, the same the same thing you're doing. Well, the whole reason they were there is because they're doing currently. You don't care anymore. And one of the reasons why, I think one of the reasons why they were doing that is because they knew that God was with them. And we know we continue to read the following verses. We know there was an earthquake and the prison bars were cast open. And what happened though, we know Paul and Silas stayed right where they were supposed to be. And as a result, we know a certain jailer was converted, right? And not just him, but he was one of them. Why were they singing praises to God? Because they knew God was with them. Jesus, obviously, is one we have to include, knew that God the Father was with him. Despite the various trials that Paul faced, they were nothing compared to Christ. Paul did not bear the sins of all mankind. Christ did. Paul did not endure the things that Christ endured physically or mentally. We have to remember, when we think about the tribulations and the hardships that Christ faced, they are not limited to just the physical realm, are they? The beatings, the, the, the spitting in the face, the, the slapping him, the scourging, the cross. No doubt that's part of things he suffered. But we also have to realize there is a spiritual and a mental side that Christ suffered. Knowing those individuals who hated him with a burning, fiery passion for those who he was trying to save. Look at Matthew chapter 14. And when he had sent the, uh, the multitude the way, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening, had, when evening came, he was alone there. Question, how alone was Christ? Physically, he was alone. The Bible says the multitudes were sent away. The disciples had been, sent, had been going across to the side. We know that following this, uh, some other miraculous events would take place. Let's look here in Matthew 14, verse 23. He's only alone in the physical sense. Because he was praying to God. And God was listening and hearing and responding to his pleas. When we say that we are alone, we have to realize and be very careful that we understand we may be physically alone, but we are never spiritually alone. God is always with us. And again, we don't mean He's whispering in our ear. We don't mean He's walking side by side with us. But He is listening to our prayers. He knows our thoughts. You think about that. The Bible tells us He knows our thoughts in every tent of our heart. It's applied to the, to the Bible message there in Timothy, but we know God knows that, doesn't He? Christ says even the hairs of our head are numbered. How can He know someone that well and not be present? Well, He must be present. Christ was not truly alone. What about in a garden there in Luke chapter 22? In Luke chapter 22, when he's in the garden in Gethsemane, the Bible tells us here in Luke's account, reminds us that this was uh, a common place where they would go to pray. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as was, his, as was a custom. And his disciples also followed him. 
And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter to, into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your, your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening, to him, strengthening him. Now, we understand this angel mission here appeared from heaven. The Bible specifically tells us that. But we also understand that an angel is a messenger, so we have a messenger appearing to God, appearing to Christ from heaven, right? He was doing what? Strengthening him. What is that an indication of? That his prayers was heard. If your prayer is heard, it means God is present, doesn't it? And because God heard his prayer, because God was present, this messenger from heaven came and strengthened him. It doesn't tell us how physically... But we know sometimes, just like we are comforted and strengthened by someone's presence, someone's words, I think this has a lot to do with what this angel does here in verse 43. In verse 44, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Now, Luke, being more detailed in a lot of ways, tells us they were asleep because they were sorrowful, not just because they were tired, because they were worried about Christ. When someone, you imagine being in their shoes, someone takes you aside and says, hey, will you come with me? I want to go pray alone. That's a very serious thing, or we should view it as such. And when the Son of God tells you that, you take most definite notice, don't you? The Bible tells us in verse 44, his sweat became like drops of blood. Many begin just believe that to be he is sweating profusely because he is so stressed in agony. There in verse 44. Why did Christ pray in the first place in this context? Because he knew God was present. He knew God would hear his prayers and that God would respond. The angel ministering to him was one clear sign. We know that's not the only reason we know that. Christ also tells us there in the book of John that when, he, when, he, when you're in one of his prayers, that he knows, he says, we know that you hear, I know that you hear me. So that others may, what, believe, he prays a very public prayer in front of everybody, right? And he prays for all mankind there, I believe in John 17. Why? Because he knew God could hear, he knew God was present because God was hearing. We have some other biblical reminders and one I got ahead of myself a little bit, a little bit of earlier, back in Jeremiah 29, verses 11 through 14. I want to point out three things here in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. That is that God promises to be near Jeremiah. God promises to hear Jeremiah. And God promises to respond to Jeremiah. To be near, to hear, and to respond. All those require a presence, don't they? To be near, to hear, and to respond. I will listen to you implies that God will respond in some way. God was near him. He would hear him and he would respond. He has promised to deliver him from his present hardships there as we see also in verse 14 of Jeremiah 29. As I think about other Old Testament promises and reminders, I think about Jacob, how he was promised in the presence of God in Jeremiah, excuse me, Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10. Many refer to this as Jacob's ladder, so to speak. In Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10, 
Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it on his head and he lay down at his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, behold, a ladder was, was, sent up on, was set up on the earth, and at its top reached, a, reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said to him, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and, and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the, and the east, to the north and the south, and, and, in you all, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. No doubt there's a lot of encouraging things there in that text. And don't you think one of the most encouraging is to hear that God is going to be with him? Bible characters, we find, are not, they are not unacquainted with hardship. And Jacob would be no different. In verse 15, he summarized, he, he concludes this section here, as I had it divided, by saying, Behold, I am with you, will keep you wherever you go, with you and keep you. God was going to give him encouragement every step of the way. Again, not being present physically, but most definitely being present in a spiritual way. I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you, until what? Until I have fulfilled all my promises. Again, consider the words of Christ. If you think about some biblical reminders, we talk about how Christ clearly shows that God was with him, but he also reminds us that God will be with us as well. In Matthew chapter 28, in the midst of, at the end of the Great Commission, he says, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now we understand he's speaking to the apostles. But just as the, the command given the apostles applies to us today, so does that last statement as well, doesn't it? How can he be with them to the end of the age if he's going to ascend into heaven? Because his presence would not be a physical one. But his presence would still be there. It's hard for us to think about that today because we can't be present with someone unless we are there physically with them. Yes, we can do online things, but we have to realize that's not the same in any capacity whatsoever. I've had televisits with doctors online, and I can't stand those things. It's not the same. And I use a lot of technology, and I still say it's not the same. When Christ says, I'm with you, he says he's going to be with them in a spiritual sense. Why not physically? It was spiritual in the sense that he would hear their prayers. He would respond, and the, those words they were going to be given as holy men of God, as we find in Acts of the two and following, are the words they were to live by, and we are to live by today. God is present, was present with them, and He is present with us today as well. No doubt God is always present, hearing and responding to our prayers, and guiding us through His written word. And then when you think about God's Word and, God, and the, the Bible as we have it today, it's unlike any book that's ever been written. It's also one of the most despised books. It's one of the most stolen books. 
one of the most desired books. It's also one of the most ignored books. But the only one that will save mankind when we obey it. It's the only one that will grant us heaven as our home when it's applied and we obey from the heart the truth we find within it. God's presence brings comfort and strength. Perhaps I should say it should bring comfort and strength. It's easy sometimes for us to say, well, we understand God is with us, I'm still worried. And no doubt that's not uncommon. But to some degree, we have to say, you know what, I need to just give these things over to God. And we do that by praying to God, bringing our concerns and our, our worries, our pleas, all those things to God. We continue to put Him first, and we allow God to handle it, and we take every day, one day at a time, following that, don't we? You know it's impossible to work three days ahead? You can only work one day at a time. We can plan for things, but until the time comes, you cannot work ahead, can you? We talk about getting ahead sometimes in life, don't we? We try to get ahead. Does that ever really work? Not very often, because what happens you find when you get there, you've got more stuff to do already. We can only take life one day at a time. God's presence should bring us comfort. One of the purposes of God's presence is to provide comfort and strength to the Christian. Why did, Paul, why did God tell Joshua and Daniel and David and uh, Paul and others that he was with them, Moses and so on? Why did he make the point and say, I will be with you? Because it was a source of comfort. Why well, I think one of the reasons, there are many reasons why the Holy Spirit came as it did in Acts chapter 2. But he's referred to as the Spirit of Truth, but also as the Comforter. Do you remember that? You can't remember the apostles were with Christ for so long. And now that he was leaving, I think there was a little bit of fear. But the Holy Spirit was to comfort them and to guide them into all truth. God today can bring us comfort. And we can find that comfort when we open up God's Word. You can't be comforted if you don't do what's necessary to allow it to happen. While God's presence isn't a miraculous form today, God remains active in the lives of the Christians to the answering of prayers and God has to be found from His inspired Word. Not just any Word, but inspired. Meaning God literally breathed those things out. And because He breathed those things out, they are profitable and good and encouraging to us. Why is God's presence important? You know, some people today might ask that question. I never really heard that. Why is it important? We know that God is present. I think one of those reasons is because one of the many tools of our enemy is causing doubt in God's presence. Our enemy wants us to believe that we are all alone. I remember one of my movies, someone was the character said, well, you're not, you're not so dangerous when you're all by yourself. So he wants you to feel like you're alone. You know, spiritually speaking, that's exactly right. If we feel like God is not with us, we're not nearly as dangerous. You think about Job, if, if he could be convinced that God was not with him, Satan would do whatever he wanted to with him. He could make him walk away. If he could convince him that God was not there, but we know that he failed in that endeavor. Job was not perfect throughout that endeavor, but we know he never doubted, he never took his faith out of God. He had questions, and he most definitely got answers. 
When we think about the tools, the tools of our enemy, he wants us to doubt God's presence. And we know we can go far beyond that. He wants us to doubt God's word. He wants us to doubt the truth. He wants us to doubt the church. He wants us to doubt the return of Christ. And on and on the list goes. The only doubt we find should be in the ideas and the hopes that mankind puts out as the way of salvation. Because that's the source of all doubt. Because we look in God's Word, we find security, we find truth, we find the way to heavenly home. The person who feels alone is easier to be defeated than the person who is confident in the fact that God is with them. Confidence means strength, while doubt means weakness. Now, a person who has confidence will charge into something without hesitation. A person who's unsure, a person who doubts, what's going to happen? Nothing good. You know, we think about soldiers, I think about sometimes soldiers or maybe policemen, firemen. If they were to approach their jobs with doubt and uncertainty... It would be very, very dangerous, wouldn't it? So they had to approach it with confidence, knowing what they're doing is right and good and best in that situation. Confidence for the Christian means strength, while doubt means weakness. As we close this morning, think about this for a moment. God's love, mercy, and presence should be a source of comfort to us. It should be a source of comfort. God is with us today, guiding us through His Word, answering our prayers. Why? Because He is still present today. Let's never waver, but have confidence in God's love for man. I want to look at one last, one, two last, two more verses before we close this morning. In Jeremiah chapter 20, beginning in verse 10. In Jeremiah 20, in verse 10, we know that in this context, Jeremiah had been placed in stockades because of he was prophesying the words of God. He was brought before the king. He brought out the stock right before the king, basically giving a chance to go against what he said before and be left alone. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he makes enemies because he continues to tell the king the truth. And we find also there in Jeremiah 20, he even tells the king to his face, you and all your friends are going to die because you've said what is wrong against God. Because you have not said what is right about God. And we find in Jeremiah 20, beginning in verse 10, here Jeremiah speaking, he says, For I heard many mocking fear on every side. Report they say, we will report it. All my acquaintances watch my stumbling, saying perhaps he can be induced, then we prevail against him, we will take our revenge on him. Everybody wanted to have their peace of Jeremiah, didn't they? They wanted their chance at it. What did he say in verse 11? But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. The King James says, terrible one. Because when you stand before God on the opposite side, it is no doubt a terrible thing, a terrible place to be. When we're on the right side with God, as Jeremiah was, it was quite the awesome thing to behold. The Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors, she says, will stumble and will not prevail. They'll be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusions will never be forgotten. Why? Because he has his confidence in God. The Lord, he says, is with me. Was the Lord physically with Jeremiah? No. But Jeremiah knew he was there. He knew God would see him through. And he knew, as he says there in verse 11, 
As a result, he says, therefore, that is as a result of what he's just said, he says his persecutors will stumble, they will not, pre- they will not prevail, they, they will greatly ashamed, but they will not prosper, their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. They'll never be forgotten because those individuals refuse to repent. Jeremiah was confident that God was with him. And God was with him and gave him strength and courage. And we can learn from that, can't we? We can learn from the words of Jeremiah that God was with him. We can learn from the words of Joshua, or from the words of the Lord to Joshua that he would be with him. We can learn from the words of the Lord to Moses that God would be with him. We can learn from the words of the Apostle Paul and of Christ that God will be with us today. So when we think about things that are going on in our lives, let's never forget who is with us. Not only is God with us as well, but also to realize that our brethren are with us. We want to do our very best to make sure that we too are a source of encouragement to others. This morning, as you think about these things, we can help you or assist you in your way. We're glad to do so. That's going to be saying, sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>